need your spirit. Uh, Some of us are tired. Some of us are weary. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us are distracted. Some of us are on the edge of our seats ready to worship Jesus, and we're thankful for that. But we know, Spirit, that you know all of our needs. And you promise that your word will not return void. It will accomplish its intended result. And here I am, offering myself to you in your service to faithfully preach your word. Would you be so kind as to help me, help us to receive it with humility? Uh, May you give us grace and wisdom as we walk through a tough topic today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, are you guys ready for this? We are talking about sexual fidelity. Yeah, what was right? Um, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23. It's a pretty interesting passage. Uh, in fact, I actually came across this passage. I, I, rec- I highly recommend this. Over the, this past summer, uh, in my time with the Lord, in my reading of Scripture, I've just kind of been reading a couple, couple chapters of Proverbs every morning, and I came across this one, and for some reason, um, I mean, <laughs> you'll see in a couple of the verses why it stands out, but for another reason, it just seemed, it seemed a very uh, easy passage to lay out to help a people in understanding the, uh, the issue of sexual fidelity. And uh, it's funny enough, after I, had, I was pretty much done with my sermon, I came across an article in the Gospel Coalition. I think it was either yesterday or day before that. Uh, it was all about premarital sex and um, evangelical college kids, their view of sex. And it's pretty amazing. There's been some studies and some statistics that have come out recently that um, about 70% of evangelical Christians between the ages of 18 to 22 have experimented with some form of premarital sex. And a large portion of that percentage would believes that it's okay to do that as long as it's consensual and it's safe and, you're, and you're, you're in love with each other and you're committed to each other. But there's a large majority of just, we're just talking about evangelical Christian college people who do not think it is wrong. They think that it is okay in the eyes of God uh, that as long as you love someone, you can engage in premarital sex. Uh, and one of the reasons why People are, the article said, one of the reasons why people are so confused about this issue uh, is because (laughs) churches and pastors um, do not feel the courage and the boldness to speak up about it. And so I I read the article, I was like, all right, Lord, I need your help today. (laughs) So, I I mean, I'm I'm trusting the Spirit of God today, and I just need you guys to know the Spirit is with you, Uh, He is with me, and He is going to be gracious and kind, and uh, I realize but there are so many nuances and issues and complexities with this. And so uh, with the Lord's help, I'm going to do my best uh, to teach it and preach it in such a way that is, is pastoral and helpful. Okay? So um, let me read the whole passage so you guys can get a feel for it. And then we'll, we'll just jump right in and, and trust that the Spirit's going to help us. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife 
of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Wow. So if you notice right off the bat, in the first few verses, verses 15 through uh, 18, Solomon compares the, the, the sexual fidelity between a man and a woman in marriage, right? He says wife, so we're talking about marriage here between a man and a woman. Sexual fidelity within marriage is compared to a source of water, a spring, stream, cistern, right? Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. He's comparing sexual fidelity to this idea of a, of a wellspring of water. And so my big question before we dive into the two necessary ingredients for preserving sexual fidelity, that's our big point today. Before we dive into that, I just wanted to ask the question, why is he making this comparison? Of all things, he could, have compa- he could have compared it to a vine. He could have compared it to a field. He could have compared it to, I don't know, Pastor Mike said one week, a pina colada or something. He said pina colada, and so I thought that was amazing. Uh, he could have compared it to anything in life, but he chose a source of water, and my question was why. And I think uh, with a little bit of the study that I was able to do, there seems to be some sort of agreement that, that sexual fidelity within marriage is an inexhaustibly pure and natural fountain that is meant to be satisfied within the confines of marriage. He compares it to a wellspring, a spring, a cistern, that there's constantly new sources of water coming out. Similarly, sexual fidelity was not meant to be inevitably boring, but magnificently thrilling. It's meant to be constantly uncover new facets of this person you're giving your life to. And it's pure. Water is pure. There's nothing impure about it. And it's a natural to desire. When you are thirsty, it's okay to want water. When you are in love with someone and want to spend the rest of your life with them, it's okay to desire sexual intimacy with them. So it's an inexhaustibly pure and natural craving meant to be satisfied within marriage. And he's given us, God himself has given us this gift to be enjoyed on his terms. Sexual fidelity inside of marriage between a man and a woman till death do them part. So the rest of the sermon, it's really simple. Two essential ingredients for maintaining and preserving sexual fidelity. Sexual fidelity, number one, requires sexual exclusivity. Sexual fidelity requires sexual exclusivity. Look at uh, verses 15 and through 17 again. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, you just throw it around everywhere? Let them be for yourself alone and not for your strangers with you. Sexual fidelity is preserved when it's 
utterly exclusive. No one and no thing should ever, ever, ever be permitted inside of the sacred act of sexual union between a man and woman in marriage, ever. It is a sacred, untouchable, you do not enter into this zone. It is the holy of holies. I've once, uh, I won't say who it is, but one time uh, someone was coming into my room and they're like, oh, I'm coming into the holy of holies right now, <laughs> right? This is, the, it's the sacred room. It's the sacred place that no one else should be invited into. It is meant to be done as it were, as if you and your wife or you and your husband were in your own little world and no one else. There's a population of two, period. And if you offer yourself sexually to more than someone, more than just someone you're married to, you inevitably cheapen sex. When you, what happens to currency when there's too much of it? It cheapens in its value. It decreases in value. You cannot have multiple sex partners and maintain a high view of sex. It's it's mutually exclusive. They, They cannot coexist. It says in verse 16, should your springs be scattered abroad Streams of water in the street. Should you just, if you just throw it around in the streets and people trample all over it, you cannot maintain a high view of it. And I can imagine someone saying, sex with, that sex with one person in marriage for the rest of your life is boring. It's I've heard the comparison that it's like listening to the same song over and over on like a broken record, same thing, hearing it over and over and over. And I remember hearing that and being slightly troubled by it, but then realizing it's, 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 it is a, an incorrect, false comparison. Uh, I would more liken sexual fidelity to traveling. Um, it's like traveling to your favorite vacation spot frequently and you have your favorite spots that you like to go, that you're familiar with, that are safe, that are comfortable, and you keep going back to there, but then there's always new places to discover, and each time you go back, your, your knowledge and experience of it broadens and deepens. He compares it to a well. Wells of water, it just keeps coming. So some of you may know this, but uh, my... My mom actually grew up in Hawaii, in Oahu, and my, mom, my grandmother lives there currently, and she's lived there for, for quite some time now, and so it's, it's kind of convenient to have a, a grandmother who lives in Hawaii, because then you have to visit her, right? It's great. Uh, so we, my, my grandfather a few years ago passed away, uh, and so she's there all alone, so we really do try to make it a point to just see her, because she's pretty lonely. Uh, so try to, now, try to make it maybe a habit every other year to go see her, uh, but I mean, I, I've been going there since I was a little baby. I mean, I, I got my first sunburn there. I've probably been there at least 15 times. I mean, Oahu uh, in Honolulu literally feels like a second home to me. I love it. Uh, every time I go there, I've got these places that I, I love to visit. Uh, we always do Diamond, Diamond Hedge uh, hike. We always go to the, 
um, to, to, to Waimea Bay, which is one of my favorite beaches, uh, which has got a nice, awesome slopes to it, and the sand is so hot, like burns the flesh off your feet, and uh, the waves are, are big enough to where you can go boogie boarding. Uh, there's, a, there's a rock off to the side that you can jump off of. Uh, I could take you to to the Pali Lookout, which is, has this beautiful scenery up on a mountain, and it's known for its wind. It's, it's strong gusts of wind. It feels like wind just kind of like you can just stand there uh, and just enjoy it. Uh, I could take you to the North Shore, uh, which has great waves, and there's this place with uh, food trucks and you get delicious fish tacos. Uh, my wife and I just uh, recently found one of our new favorite hikes at the Cocoa Crater Trail, which is like this insanely, intensely steep uh, hike that goes straight up the spine of a mountain. But it's like a second home to me, and, and I love going there. And my knowledge and experience of it is so much broader and deeper than someone who just kind of goes there quickly for a first time. And, and, and the comparison is it's pretty obvious. It's, that's, that's how sexual fidelity is in marriage. It's met, that's what's God's goal. I mean, I realize it doesn't automatically happen, but that's God's intention. The, on the other hand, on the flip side, someone who just, spreads, who just spreads themselves sexually across to anyone is like someone who says, hmm, where do I want to go today? I, I want to go to the Colosseum. And so you cross over the border illegally into Rome, and you get on your silly moped, you zip over to the Colosseum, take a little selfie, put on an Instagram, say, I've been here, and then you leave the country. And then you go to Paris, and you want to see the Eiffel Tower. So you, get in your, you cross the border illegally, you get on your moped, you zip over to the Eiffel Tower, take another selfie, put on Instagram, been here. And then you want to go see the Parthenon in Athens, Greece, so you zip over, cross over the borders illegally always. Get on your moped, zip over to the Parthenon, take a little selfie, put on Instagram. Sure, you may have been a lot of places, but your knowledge and experiences of traveling in those places might be a mile wide, but it's an inch deep. If you spread yourself sexually with anyone and everyone, as I said, you necessarily cheapen it, and you may think that you're familiar with it. You may think you know everything there is to know about the glories of this gift of sex from God, but you frankly have a knowledge and experience of it that is necessarily no deeper than an inch. But someone who has reserved this sacred gift from God for one person in marriage, and they have devoted themselves to to, to practice this and engage with it and and to commit themselves in this way to this other person, yes, their knowledge of it may be narrow, but oh, it is so deep. And this was God's intention. This was God's design Sexual fidelity requires and it necessitates sexual exclusivity. Secondly, sexual fidelity requires sexual intimacy. Fidelity to be maintained, preserved, protected, held up, sustained, requires exclusivity, and it also requires intimacy. Look at verses 18 through 19, the verses that we're all wondering about. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. I'm not totally sure why he compares a wife to a deer. Um, 
we have a lot of, we live up on, the, on Hawthorne Heights, up on a hill, and deer kind of run, run along. And I mean, they're pretty graceful and lovely. Our, our girls like to look out the window and stare at them. They're very beautiful when they run along. So, I mean, I'm not really sure, totally sure why. I just know that his wife is lovely and graceful, and that's all that really matters. The verses, verse 19. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Is it hot in here? <laughs> I mean, wow. So, before we get into this, some of you need to realize that the Bible talks about sex and celebrates sex in highly pleasurable ways. It is not just intended for procreation. It is also intended for pleasure. And this is a gracious gift of God. The reason why it's important that we just pause and take note of the fact that the Bible talks about this, not necessarily what is being said, but the fact that it's being said at all. It's because I wonder how many of you have, been, have grown up in homes where sex was either never talked about or if it was talked about, it was talked about as like the unforgivable sin that you could never, ever enter into. That if you do any sort of sexual thing with someone who you're not married to, that is the unforgivable sin. Jesus' blood cannot cover that, which is absolutely absurd. If you think about it, there are going to be plenty of people in heaven who have failed miserably sexually, but have known the grace and the forgiveness and the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. So some of you have been raised in this home where it has not been taught well, but if it has been talked about at all, it's kind of just smushed with condemnation. It's kind of always just, just gatekeeped it and just kept in this little tiny box. You should never, ever talk about it. And the problem is that if, it's, if you're not... If you don't teach kids well on this issue, it results in two types of people. One is, uh, well, there's this helpful category that um, I saw in Mark Driscoll's book on real marriage. I don't know which, how you feel about that guy, but he wrote a book on marriage that's pretty popular, and he has this really helpful category, uh, three categories that, that pe people can kind of view sex. One is gross, one is God, and one is gift. And so if you raise in the home where uh, it was kind of never talked about or talked about in very condemning ways, you're, you're, you're maybe the child that was a little bit more submissive, a little bit more obedient to the parents, really afraid to disobey and, and hurt their feelings. And so sex was just kind of always this fearful thing. You never knew how to engage with it, never knew how to think about it. So you just kind of steered clear. And if you ever did get into marriage, you would only ever do it if you had to have babies. That person views it as kind of a gross thing, whereas the other person views it as a god. It's the person who, they're a little bit more rebellious. They hear this legalistic expression and in, in, in teaching about sex, uh, but it feels like this impossible standard. Every, the world talks about how wonderful it is and how glorious it is and how good it feels, but my parents are talking about how bad it is. I mean, why, forget this thing. And so they leave the home like the younger brother in Luke 15 and they just indulge in all types of sexual hedonism. It becomes their God. When in reality, sex is a gift. It's not God. It's not gross. It's a wonderful gift meant to be enjoyed on God's terms. 
And if you try to enjoy it outside of God's terms, you fundamentally corrupt it and hinder the deep wells of joy that have you found in it. The Bible actually gives us the green light within marriage between one man and one woman to go after it, to enjoy one another. The Bible actually commands it. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. That's a command. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. That's, that's physical enjoyment. You actually enjoy this person's body. Be intoxicated always in her love. That is a deep emotional connection that when you are in the act of sexual intimacy, it actually, he uses this word of intoxication. The same author of Proverbs actually says in, in Solomon, Solomon chapter 5, verse 1, it should be up on the screen, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with, oh, I thought I was going to say wine. It says love. So this is, the, this, is the, this is the typical book. This is the essential book in the Bible about sex. And it's this moment in, in Song of Solomon chapter 5 where the people are rejoicing over the marriage union between this man and this woman. And they're like, enjoy. Get drunk off each other. Get intoxicated off each other's love. Have your fill with one another. The Bible gives us the green light to do this. And this is what I love is that God in his wisdom has given us hormones, things like oxytocin and dopamine, which are the sexual hormones that actually give you the intoxicating feeling. But it's only meant to be aroused by one person. So this is God's wisdom. In his wisdom, he has intended for you and I to be in, have this Sexual intoxication with one person. To have it aroused and awakened by a single person so that, as it were, you become addicted to one person within marriage. So you're just like, I got my eyes on you and no one else. My heart pounds for no one else except for you. I, I desire no one else except for you. Why does anyone drink wine? It, it gladdens the heart and relaxes the body. And so he's borrowing that language and he's saying, you're supposed to be addicted to one person in marriage. And this is how sexual intimacy preserves and protects sexual fidelity. Because when you are being satisfied in this way with one person, the temptation to look elsewhere is smothered in the holy pleasures of sanctified sex in marriage. This is one of the reasons, not the reason, but one of the reasons why someone might be tempted with infidelity. It is not an excuse for infidelity, but one of the reasons for why someone would, would find the temptation so strong is because there is a drought of intimacy. There is a famine of physical, intoxicating enjoyment of one another, of self-giving one another, of love and expression in this way to one another. 
And if there's the drought, we, I mean, these, these desires in us are natural. And, it, and what that does, it doesn't excuse infidelity. It just creates a little bit of a crack into the bedroom door for Satan to wiggle his way into. And he begins to whisper, whisper lies. This person doesn't really love you. You deserve to be loved. This is not true love. What's most important is that your sexual desires are fulfilled, that your desires for intimacy are fulfilled. If you can't get them here, you deserve to have them somewhere else. That's why it says in verse 20, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? That's a rhetorical question. Go back to verse 20. That's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. You shouldn't be intoxicated with a forbidden woman who's not your spouse. Why would you not be tempted to do that? Because of verse 19. You're being intoxicated with the one whom God has given you. And so the temptation is smothered and blunted and kicked out because it's being obeyed in verse 19. Paul the Apostle actually makes this same point in 1 Corinthians 7. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Next verse, verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, here it is, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. To deprive someone of this in marriage is to create optimum conditions for Satan to have his way. I have actually heard stories. Well, Kara, I don't know if you remember this, but in our premarital, uh, the guy who did our premarital counseling told us a story about a time when one woman did not want to be with her husband, so she intentionally deprived him of sex for years so that he might eventually go find it somewhere else. And as soon as he committed the act of adultery, it gave her grounds to leave him and go find someone else. It's pretty sick. But it's a, it illustrates the, the importance of sexual intimacy for preserving sexual fidelity. Now, here's the thing. Because I actually struggled... I'm just going to be honest. Can I just be honest with you guys for just a moment? I'm just be real. I'm just be real. I actually struggled just a little bit of whether or not I should preach this sermon because of my age. I'm 34. And I can imagine some of you out there who have been married for like 40 years, 50 years, crossing your arms and going, what do you know, bucko? You've been married, what, 10 years? Preach your cute little sermon when you've been married 40 years and see what, how, you, how you feel about it. If you look at verse 18, it says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Because I also struggled with that phrase too. 
And if, I can even show you afterwards. I have that phrase circled in my Bible because I wasn't totally sure. Is this, is this only applicable to those who are newly married? Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Because I can imagine some of you saying, young bucko, <laughs> my wife ain't so youthful anymore. My husband ain't so youthful anymore. This doesn't apply to me. So, and then I began to stare and think about it for just a moment, and I began to think, what if it's actually saying, rejoice in the wife of your youth, that is, from your youth, the one whom you've been married to, the one from the beginning. And so here's the thing. I'm going to give you the fact that I do not have as much experiential authority as some of you have been faithfully married for 40 and 50 years. I'm going to just... I'm just going to play along and pretend that, that you are totally right and I don't have grounds to speak. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to let someone else who does have experiential authority is a pastor named Ray Ortland Jr. And he's been married to his wife for 45 years, I believe. And he actually talks about this specific phrase, rejoice in the wife of your youth. He's been happily married. He's written, written a ton of stuff on marriage. I highly recommend him. He's one of my favorite pastors and preachers. 45 years he's been married. And you should hear the way this man talks about his wife. Here's what he says about rejoice in the wife of your youth. Quote, Proverbs 5.18 does not say rejoice in your young wife. No wife can remain young for long. Proverbs 5 wisely points out that she is the wife of your youth. However long you both live as husband and wife, she will always be that girl. Look at her. She is that girl you married back when you both were young. The passing years have no power to change that tender reality. She is still that girl who gave herself to you on your wedding day. She is still that girl who put herself in your arms. She is still that girl who went with you into the homeroom, into the hotel room on your wedding night. You locked the door and she trusted you. She undressed for you. She gave herself to you. She could not have been more vulnerable. She could not have been more honoring toward you. Remember that. Dwell on that. And marvel on that. That's profound. And I remember when I came across this, I actually uh, got a little bit teary-eyed because I, I, I began to imagine that like, I know there are so many complex issues involved with this topic. And I want you to know that I am not ignorant and I'm not pastorally naive that there are so many complicated issues when it comes to this topic. There are some of you, there are justified trust issues that are, that are holding you back from pursuing this. Trust has been violated. For some of you, there are psychological problems. There are some things that are going on mentally that, 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 that holds you back from experiencing intimacy with your spouse. There are some people, it's, it's just physiological. It is health issues. It is tough seasons of life. All of this comes around, all of this comes together to make some of you, it's, 
it's near impossible to do this. And I want you to know that that needs to be acknowledged and that God is merciful. His eye is upon you. It says in verse 21 that his eye is upon you, not just for your failings morally, sexually, but even just to know that he, he, he sees the situation, he's aware of it, and he's a good God, and he's merciful toward it. So, with the, the abundant amount of complex issues that are involved in this, Here's what I have to say. Insofar as it is possible, insofar as it is within your power to pursue intimacy in this way with your spouse, you strive for it. Insofar as it's possible. And in the striving, in the act of striving towards it, I would offer four very brief counsels. Number one is communication. You have to open up the conversation. Some of you, you've closed off the topic, you've just kind of shut the door, and it's just a topic you don't talk about. It's never going to happen if you never talk about it. There needs to be honest and safe and frequent communication about the issue. Secondly is patience. This is just tough. It's really hard. Anybody, any of you who are married know that this sexual intimacy is not simple. It is hard, it is frustrating at times, it's awkward at times, it's weird at times, and you're... but you need to have patience with each other. It takes time to get to, it, to this. So communication, patience. Thirdly, grace. Some of you, you're gonna make the, make the attempt and you're gonna fail at it. And the other, you need to know the other person needs to know that you are totally for them. That you are not going to shame them. You are not going to smother them in guilt. That when they make an effort to do this, they need to know that it is a safe place to fail. It's a safe place to try and to not do it very well. And last but not least, so communication, patience, grace, and lastly, if necessary, get help. Find someone you trust. And just be honest. Hey, we are, we're struggling. We want to listen and submit ourselves to God. It is within our power to pursue this, and we have not been, and we're having a hard time. Can you please help us? I have had people come to me and say, I'm having a hard time, Pastor. Can you please help me? And I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm just saying thank you for being honest, and let's pray about it and talk about it and think about this, and how do we work through this issue? Now, to the unmarried and single. Verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? The first thing that needs to be said is this. Because of the, the, the statistic that I gave you earlier, but a large majority of Christians are not aware that it's wrong. And the Bible is very clear. The only relationship that sexual intimacy is ever to be experienced is between a husband and a wife in marriage, period. Any other place, any other relationship, any, per, any other place where you try to explore it outside of the biblical confines of marriage is 
sin. It is sin. And you need to know that if you are unmarried and you are single, and even the married too, we all need to be abundantly clear. It just needs to be said that this gift is meant to be joined exclusively within the confines of biblical marriage. Second, one of the reasons, not the reason, that premarital or even postmarital sex is devastating is not just because it's in disobedience to God and you're rebelling against God's good design and gift of sex. You need to notice that the word intoxicated is used in verse 19 and verse 20. You can experience sexual intoxication with someone you're married to and someone you're not married to. So sexual intoxication can be experienced in both scenarios, but it's for different reasons. The person whom you're married to, the reason why it's so thrilling and intoxicating is because it's a gift from the Lord. It's pure. It's holy. It's natural. It's sacred. It's celebrated, and it's God-glorifying. But if it's with someone that you're not married to, what makes it so intoxicating is what I would call the naughty factor. The sheer fact that it's wrong. And your sin likes it, and Satan preys on it. The reason why sex outside of marriage seems uniquely thrilling is because their sinful nature enjoys the wrongness of it. And each time you give into it, your soul and your body gets used to the wrongness of it. It starts to develop an acquired taste for the naughty sex, you might say, for the wrong kinds, for the kind that's outside of the bounds of God's good design. So let's say that a, 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 a man and a woman, they fall in love and they want to get married and they but they begin to experiment in this way. And they get used to the fact that it's wrong. What happens when you get married? That goes away. And so all the thrilling passion you experienced for the wrong effect goes away and it's no longer there. And so it's not uncommon for newlyweds to say things like, I don't know, we were so passionate before and then we got married and just kind of disappeared. That's because it's no longer wrong. And the particular kind that you liked was wrong. And all of a sudden you got married and it was right. And your soul does not have that acquired taste. And here's the thing. Satan does not just want you to disobey God in this area. He wants to set you up so you can't enjoy the glories of it that he has intended within marriage. So that when you give into it, he's setting you up to be incapable of experiencing it the way that he's intended. Now, it can be redeemed, it can be restored by God's grace, with patience, with grace, with humility, with getting help. It can be restored. But you need to know that's one of the devastating effects with experimenting it outside of marriage. One of the greatest lies today in our culture 
is that you cannot be fully human. You cannot be a fully flourishing human being unless you are able to have sex with whoever you want. There is this crazy notion that the essence of being a full flourishing human being is sexual freedom. If that is true, then Jesus Christ could not have been a true man. He was single his whole entire life. And what I want to suggest to you today is that the essence of human flourishing, flourishing as an image bearer of God, is not to have your sex gratified, but your soul <laughs> satisfied. I'm going to say that again. The essence of human flourishing does not require your sex to be satisfied, but your soul to be excuse me, for your sex to be gratified, but your soul to be satisfied. This is very good news for you who are single. Especially those of you who, who are going to be single for the rest of your life. And that may be what God intends. Because some of you may feel left out right now because you're not in marriage. You're not able to enjoy this gift from God. But what I would argue is that you are actually in a position to experience the deep love and joy and pleasure found in a relationship with Christ. More so than someone who's in marriage. Because you're able to give complete, total, utter undivided attention to Jesus Christ. You need to know that you can be a fully flourishing disciple of Jesus Christ, God-glorifying servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and never experiment with this because it's not at the essence of who you are. The essence of who you are is who your soul worships. Imagine what marriage would be like if the only sexual intimacy the man and a woman ever experienced was exclusively between them. That is Christ's design. That is Christ's vision. That is Christ's plan for marriage. God's, when he created us from the beginning, his plan was that all of us, if we were to be married, to experience this only with one person, and it's for it to be so pure and holy and life-giving and joyful. And for that to roll up into worship of the Lord. But the reality is, this room is filled. We, I need to stress we, we have all failed sexually. We are all, as a term I've heard before, sexual sinners. Sexual brokenness is rampant. It is everywhere. It has devastated marriage. It has devastated souls. It has held people back from totally giving themselves to Jesus Christ to serve him and to fulfill the plan that he has for their lives. This is just a reality. We are all broken. There, is just, there are unseen messes everywhere. We have lost sight of God's good and gracious design for sexual intimacy and marriage. We have portrayed our spouses in many ways. Many, if not all of us, have a sexual past. Some of you have, some of you husbands have not rejoiced in your wife for years. Some of you wives, whether you realize it or not, have failed to encourage your husband in his masculinity. He wants to pursue this, but he doesn't 
because he doesn't feel like a man around you. Maybe some of you have, been, have given up hope ever experiencing intimacy with your spouse. Maybe you aren't married and you have scattered your springs and streams throughout the street with people you are not married to or you are single and long to experience God's design of holy, pure sexual intimacy in marriage and you're growing in your bitterness and frustration towards God. Regardless, we've all been led astray. Can you go to the very last part of Proverbs 5, 22? In verse 23, the last phrase, he dies for lack of discipline because of his great folly he is led astray. We've all been led astray in this area. And all of us need to feel verse 21. We need to feel verse 21. Look at verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. It is, it is right for us to feel the weight of God's eye of judgment on this issue. It's right. He sees it, he knows it, and he's going to judge it. But when we feel the weight of this, that only sets us up to see and experience what ultimately this issue reveals we're longing for. Because at the very beginning, when it talks about how it compares sexual fidelity between a man and a woman to a well, a cistern, a source of water, and all throughout the Bible, there are encounters between men and women at wells. Isaac meets Rebecca at a well. Jacob meets Rachel at a well. Moses meets Zipporah at a well. But the most famous meeting of all at a well, we all know this, is with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And if there's one thing we know about this woman is that she had a sexual past. Let's look at John 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We do not know why she had five husbands. Either she was taken advantage of, she is a, um, she's a victim of sexual predators or she is, a, she is a predator herself and takes advantage of other men. We don't know. All we know is she has a sexual past. She's ashamed of it. She's trying to hide it from Jesus. And you need to realize that the eye of judgment in verse 21 of Proverbs 5, behind it are the eyes of mercy found in Jesus Christ looking at this woman here that every single one of us, regardless of our sexual past, regardless of the ways that we have failed to uphold God's good design in this area, we need to know that this is how Jesus meets us. This is how he treats us. This is how he engages with us. 
And when you come to Jesus, you not only find someone with wounds in their hands proving that they have died for your sins and all the ways that you have given in to these dark secrets of yours, they have been absorbed into his body and smothered in his death, never to return. The punishment you and I deserve was taken upon him. And you can experience new beginnings in his resurrection. He did not just die for your sins. He also rose from the dead to give us new life. That those of us who have a past, we, we long for resurrection. We long for something new. We long for a new beginning. We wish we could be born again. And Jesus says, you can be born again through me. You see, this issue reveals that the issue of sexual fidelity is tied to something much deeper. We're all craving and longing for deep sense of intimacy and satisfaction and union with someone. And it can be found in Christ. He says in John 6, 35, whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never, ever thirst. So regardless of where you're at, regardless of what you're feeling, it doesn't matter if you are single. It doesn't matter if you are divorced. It doesn't matter if you are widowed. It doesn't matter if you are married. And any other person that I've missed, all of us can find deep satisfaction, deep forgiveness, and deep connection with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for, for Christ. We thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are so kind to us. And we have all failed in many ways, but we need your grace. I pray for those who are married, that you would encourage them, lift them up, build them up, and lead them into deeper joy. Pray for those who are single, that you would give them patience, that they would know that they can be fully satisfied now with their relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the one we are all after. I pray for those who are feeling particularly broken and, and condemned, that you would remind them, that you meet them with mercy and grace as you did the woman at the well. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.